Welcome back to the FKT Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today, we're catching up with Travis Soares and Nathan Longhurst, who are the first two people to complete all 247 summits of the Sierra Peaks section list in a single year. While Travis holds the FKT, completing the list in 117 days to Nathan's 138, the effort was a partnership. So today we're going to discuss the gear, the logistics, and the mental and physical challenges of a big peak bagging list FKT. So Travis, you have done a lot. When I was researching this, I thought it was really interesting. You're an AT through hiker um, from 2018. You've got multiple FKTs, um, but you grew up in Rhode Island, if I'm not wrong. And so I'm really curious how you get from Rhode Island. I've been there, I've been to the high point, Jeremoth Hill, <laughs> which is not much of a mountain. How do you get from Rhode Island to mountains, to the AT, to like these huge FKTs? I'm really curious about that journey. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fair question. And first of all, I'd like to say thanks for inviting us onto the podcast. I've been a big fan for a long time. and. A fan of you as well, Heather. So it's an honor oh, to be able to talk to you. Yeah. So growing up, I was definitely like a weird, angsty hippie kid. I was like always barefoot. I just, I like being outside a lot um, and just knew that's what I really like to do. And uh, so I chose to go to school out in Arizona where I basically was exposed to, to climbing. And I was also, I had a background as a runner. I just love to do running and climbing and combining them as a, as a form of activity. So like running to the local crag or running to meet my friends at the bouldering area and then climbing. And then, yeah, I basically just explored that. After I graduated, I hiked the Appalachian Trail, explored through hiking a little bit. I also hiked the AZT. And then, yeah, I basically just got into FKTs. I tried, uh, the first one I tried was this climb right on in Joshua Tree. And it's a couple hundred feet of scrambling and running and was able to get the record. And it was like, oh, that, that was kind of fun. I um, guess I'm somewhat decent at this. <laughs> and so, yeah, basically just explored more and more uh, run scramble FKT efforts and then yeah, the Sierra Peak section was kind of the ultimate manifestation of that. Yeah, I mean, the ability to move fast over scrambly terrain is definitely important for something like this. So Nathan, I was surprised. Like, I actually didn't realize that you were the second person to do a single season boulder list completion and yep. the youngest. And I think that's amazing. Like, I don't know how I missed that, but <laughs> congratulations. Like as somebody Thank who's you. been working the Bulger list for years, like I know what goes into that. So I think it's really interesting because like, I haven't done a lot of the, the true Sierra peaks. Like I've done a lot of a different Sierra club list. That's the desert peaks. So I'm curious, like how did the SPS compare to the Bulger list? That's a good question. The SPS list definitely has less bushwhacking and less just like kind of heinous below tree line travel. Uh, Cause there's, you know, a lot of times in this area you're just up in the Alpine on these big Alpine plateaus. It's pretty easy to move between the peaks. Uh, so definitely a very different feel, very different Alpine environment. The Cascades are a lot lower elevation generally, but mm -hmm much steeper and more rugged because you have these really, really deep uh, glacier carved valleys. So yeah, the, the Bulger list 
I would say it was maybe a little bit more mentally challenging just because you're doing a lot of really difficult travel down below treeline where you can't really see the mountains and just like mm-hmm. getting up and down these heinous steep hills that are really thickly or you know densely vegetated. So maybe the SPS list was a little bit more type one fun. Uh, the SPS list also had a lot more technical climbing that we incorporated, like fifth class routes, because, you know, the Sierra has so many classic alpine routes. We wanted to incorporate lots of those. Uh, I did some skiing on my SPS effort as well. So that was obviously very different from anything I did in the Bulgers. I didn't ski any, or I skied just a couple of the Bulger peaks. But yeah, I would say overall, since the SPS list is significantly longer, you know, it's two and a half times as many peaks, I would say it was overall a much more challenging objective, but the Bulger list is maybe like tougher, like per, per peak, per capita, if you will. <laughs> right, right. More bang for your buck, maybe. Exactly. But they're yeah. both fantastic lists. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think the big question that comes to mind when you're talking about this big, like, peak bagging project, you know, 247 peaks. I mean, you guys were out there for most of the summer working on this. Actually, you started in the spring. So the big question is why? Why take something like this on? You mean you guys were the first people to, to do this as like a continuous effort. So Travis, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your why. Yeah, my relationship with the Sierras began when I was 19 and I came out here for an Alpine mountaineering course with Prescott College and we climbed a couple peaks and it totally blew my mind and I loved it just being able to climb on a ridge like all day and link it with other ridges and just all yeah just explore the the planet granite i call it and so i just came back year after year and explored a little bit more and more and then once this idea was presented to me it just seemed like the ultimate way to develop my intimacy with the range and it truly did like now i just can stand on any lookout and like see all the high points and be like oh yeah, I remember being up there with Nathan, and I remember that, and I know all their names, and it just feels like I've turned this, like, mystery mountainscape into, like, a home for me, and that's just, I'm really grateful to be able to do that, and I love just learning more about landscapes and feeling welcome there. Nathan, how about you? For me, I just, you know, I I love moving through technical terrain efficiently. I I love the way that doing a big project like this, that's day after day after day, you just get so in tune with both your body and the environment that you're moving through. Uh, You just get like so familiar with the feeling of what it's like to, you know, move over those third and fourth class ridges quickly. Um, Yeah, just that aspect of being like really, really fully invested in a project and, you know, waking up with a purpose every day and a goal every day to have something to keep chipping away at is really uh, really satisfying to me. It gives like a lot of direction to my existence for those, you know, few months that I was doing it. So yeah, just the challenge and the focus that it gives. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your guys's like partnership. So what you guys did was like a little bit unusual, especially in the FKT realm, you know, Travis, you have the official FKT, but I know you did most of these peaks together. Um, so, how did that whole dynamic play out? Like, like, was was your intention always to complete this together? But at a point, you decided like one of you was moving faster. Or, I mean, how did that go? So I actually I started first. Um, I'm a big ski mountaineer. I love skiing big, gnarly, steep lines. It's one of my favorite ways to move in the mountains. And so as soon as I started planning, like even in the, in the earliest stages of the project, I knew that I wanted to ski as many of the peaks as possible. 
the Eastern Sierra, in my opinion, are one of the best venues for ski mountaineering in the whole world. Mm-hmm. And so that, that just made sense to me. And so I found all the ski lines that I could do. And I started in February. And mm-hmm. Travis, who's a little bit less of a winter guy, he likes his desert sunshine. Uh, he waited yeah. until, when was it? Late April, I believe, that Travis started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and for the listeners, I just want to, like, clarify that technically I I do have the fastest time, but this would not have been completed without Nathan, and I totally consider it, like, our journey and, like, our effort, and, like, <laughs> we weren't really, like, racing, like, pushing each other down, trying to get to the top of the summit, you know, <laughs> first. Oh, my God. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it was just, like, a magnificent journey the two of us embarked on. And, um, yeah, grateful to be able to share share it with this guy. <laughs> yeah, it was a fantastic partnership. I think we really just our, – our style in the mountains and, you know, the way that we approached the effort really meshed well. And, you know, we just had a great time together and enjoyed each other's company a lot. But it was one, one day we woke up after, like, a couple-day trip. We're camping up pretty high underneath this underneath uh gray gray peak and mm-hmm. or no it was the evening but nathan was like you know you're the first part- partner that i haven't ever like <laughs> really gotten tired of or had issues with and i was like all right nice. <laughs> yeah if you spend four months with anyone even if it's your you know your romantic partner or like your best friend like you're bound to run into issues but for the most part we got along pretty well yeah especially considering the fact that we were spending like literally 24 hours a day together you know we're <laughs> scrambling together all day through challenging terrain and then we sleep right next to each other for a meager six hours of sleep and then just back at it so yeah it worked out well we didn't know each other at all basically before before the project really so how did you guys come up with this like did you plan this together or were you just both independently planning to be out there like how did how did this happen if you didn't know each other so i actually i i was doing the initial planning and i was just kind of looking for partners because you know i i enjoy traveling in the mountains solo but i knew that for some of the more technical stuff and for some of the longer days it would be nice to have a partner especially an experienced partner in the sierra Mm -hmm. and so i got in touch with travis through our mutual friend jason hardrath who Mm -hmm. i'm sure you've heard of and um yeah, so initially I think Travis was just hoping to join for like several days and just be a partner. But then uh, the more that he started looking into the project, the more we started talking, we realized that we got along really well. And then he start, started expressing interest on doing the whole list as well. And I was just super stoked about that. So, you, Nathan, you mentioned you did a lot of the initial planning. Um, once um, Travis was like on board, did that cause like an evolution in like, how you plan like what order you did these peaks in because obviously you set out to ski a bunch of them um and then i know obviously quite a few of these are are quite technical travis mentioned doing these alpine routes uh, on them so did you guys then kind of come up with a plan together or did that just kind of evolve as you guys went along through the whole project yeah a lot of the route specifics we sort of figured out together on a day-by-day basis i think i already had most of sort of the general route planning as far as like the order and like which groups of peaks we were going to do together i already had most of those done before uh before travis jumped on board 
but yeah, a lot of like the like the more specific route finding and the micro route finding we did together on a day by day basis. And Travis, when you when you came into this, uh, like obviously Nathan was already skiing some of these peaks. Did you try to just like go in and get those done um, before you guys joined forces, or were you just kind of picking those up throughout the summer as the project went along? Yeah, so when I joined Nathan, we started in the Whitney area and then basically went south from there and did like a whole loop around the range. And I went back later once all those peaks had, had dried up and uh, climbed them on my own after Nathan had finished. And what was nice about that was that they're all like pretty much pretty accessible compared to some other peaks. And so when Nathan finished, I had like 70 peaks left and uh, I had been through most of the difficult challenges at that point. Makes sense. So I'm curious a little bit about the gear, because obviously we've talked about skiing, we're talking about alpine climbing, we're talking about scrambling. You guys were out there from the spring all the way through into the summer. So talk about some of the, maybe the gear challenges or swaps, uh, you know, what kind of worked and what didn't, like what, what was your strategy for, for your gear? Well, we definitely went through lots of pairs of running shoes. I don't think yeah. either of us ever wore yeah. like pro shoes. I guess maybe we wore climbing shoes on a couple of them, but mostly we were just in running shoes for the whole thing, mm-hmm. at least after I finished skiing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used snowshoes for a couple days right after I finished skiing, which worked, but wasn't the best. Snowshoeing long distances in the mountains <laughs> is kind of heinous. Oh, it's terrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. As a, as a skier, like I hated it so much. You'll you'll appreciate this. We um, we climbed a couple peaks throughout the day, and it, it got dark, and we still had like I don't know seven ish miles back to our camp. But there was no trail. We were hiking along the the JMT, and we had to hike over Glen Pass. And uh, like at midnight, we were just like questing up Glen Pass, like oh, post holing. Somehow, like wasty powder. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not good, even in good conditions. Yeah. And there had been no, yeah. no, no hikers that passed through at that point in the season. There was a late season snowstorm uh, right after Travis started, and so like there, there wasn't any base. Like a lot of stuff had melted out, so it was just like two feet of fresh powder on top of talus, like the worst oh, possible God. conditions. That's horrible. So. I'm kind of curious about what are the gnarly situations that happened out there that are going to always like stick in your mind and stand out when you think about back in this. Because, I mean, anytime you're spending this much time in the mountains, there is some gnarly stuff that happens. And uh, yeah, you guys must have some pretty amazing stories. So Travis, what is the situation that stands out the most to you? Yeah, I think um, probably traversing the entire range of the Palisades was uh, a big epic adventure for me and, and Nathan. And the Palisades, for people who don't know, contains uh, six or seven of the California 14ers. And they're just this these giant uh, dark monoliths that sort of rise out of the Sierras. And they mm-hmm. form a very jagged ridgeline. And um, the whole project, we had sort of been seeing them from afar and being like, oh, man, like, we're going to have to climb those at some point. And, um, and I just, we had always heard, like, stories of people who, like, you know, everyone epics in the Palisades. Right. And uh, so so we, we we did this this trip starting in the Evolution Range where we climbed a bunch of peaks out there, and we did the Evolution Traverse, which is a 
five nine eight mile tra uh, traverse and then we link that into the palisades um a week or two later um as this long long push where we we did about 45 peaks in 14 days and so we we headed into the palisades with pretty minimal amount of rest at that point i've been dipping into like a little bit of sleep deprivation and same with nathan um, but we started super early and we had 12 peaks to climb over the course of two days was our plan. We started at like 3 a.m. and headed up onto the ridge. And um, yeah, basically the Southern Palisade Traverse had, to our, to our knowledge, had been done very, very little amount of times, like the full traverse from the Palisade Crest all the way over to uh, the Thumb. And so we didn't really know what to expect. And uh, yeah, it was just like, uh, the first part was really fun, just beautiful, like climbing up and over these 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 towers with great rock and uh, awesome holds and some fun movement and, and cracks. And, um, and then uh, the rock at certain sections would, would, be, would be a lot worse. And, but yeah, it basically took us like 12 hours to, to traverse like, I don't know, like a mile maybe because wow. it's just highly technical and uh yeah we're just on this terrain this no fall terrain for like 12 hours and yeah do you want to tell the second half of the story nathan absolutely so we um we got out from that south palisade traverse we actually ended up getting benighted because south fork pass is supposed to go and it did not at all it goes like 50 degree <laughs> frozen mud um, oh god yeah we, so, we had to cuddle <laughs> up at thirteen thousand feet uh, yeah we, uh, we had, we had a nice food little and water. <laughs> so the next morning we trudged out like absolute zombies to a different trailhead um actually like basically reclimbing one of the peaks in the process we had to go back up and over the thumb to get out to the birch lake trailhead uh mm. Fortunately, uh, someone someone who lived in Bishop who was follow following along the project, guy that we didn't know, uh, named Peter, who he was able to come pick us up from the trailhead, get us back into back to our cars. Um, but so we ended up taking an extra day that day because we we're like, yeah, we we can't go back in right now. So got some pizza and got some sleep, and then early early the next morning we went back in for the sort of the North Palisade, like Palisade Glacier Basin Traverse, um, which was. Actually, it ended up being my last day. It was my last seven peaks. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, I, I, I was really excited for it. It was kind of like the whole project had been leading up to it. But, um, so, yeah, we started on Temple Crag and then just kind of traversed around the basin. So, we did Temple Gailey Sill, some really fantastic climbing, some classic alpine routes, honestly, some of the best routes in the Sierra. Um, and then hopped on to, like, the it's pretty well-known, what a lot of people call the Palisades Traverse, which is just the Thunderbolt to Sill section. Uh, mm -hmm. That that all went pretty well, but um, we're starting to get a little bit later in the day, a little bit later than we wanted to. Uh, and then our route, the, just the way the, the link up works, the it seemed like in the research, the best route to take up Mount Windshell was going to be this route called the Southwest Chute. Um, and we weren't allowed, we weren't able to find a lot of information on the Southwest Chute of Windchill, but we found just enough to, you know, make it seem like it would probably go, like people had done it, you know, people had called it anywhere from fourth class to like low fifth. And we were like, oh, we've done harder stuff than that, like we can figure it out. And so we went, quest <laughs> we went qu questing up this chute. It started out fine, you know, just like a 
classic steep Sierra gully, actually pretty decent rock in the bottom from getting cleaned out from, you know, snow slides and rock fall and stuff. Just kind of picking her up the chute. Uh, but then up at the top, it kind of just dead ended into, into nothing. It got super steep. Mm-hmm. There were these like really sketchy blocks perched everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. and we like tried, we tried traversing out like either way and there was like nowhere to traverse to get up on a ridge line. And so he ends up climbing basically just direct out the top of this chute, which we later found out is like not the route that anyone takes. <laughs> um, right. Because it was like, it was probably, I don't know, like five, eight climbing on these giant oh, wow. blocks that were like fully detached and just like balanced mm-hmm. like a, you know, like a Jenga tower. They're just like stacked on top of each other. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that was, for, the, for me, that was like the scariest moment of the whole project was climbing up those yeah. blocks. I was just like, literally just like begging each block to stay in place. Like, oh my goodness. Oh, this is not cool. Oh um, yeah, totally. Yeah. So that, that was engaging. That was pretty full on, but we talked out <laughs> right at sunset and you know, it all worked out, made our way over to Agassiz, which is my last peak and, you know, made it in one piece, but we were definitely a yeah. little bit, little bit gripped on that one looking back. Yeah. Way to save the most epic thing till the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, the last day was definitely the the most epic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always that moment, I think, where you're just like, I know I'm off route. This is clearly not right, but I don't have a choice right now. So (laughs) you, you do, you're like praying to the rocks, like stay (laughs) in place, please. Oh, man. Yeah. And looking back, like that one was a pretty big learning opportunity for me. I think I matured a lot from that because it was definitely like it, it was beyond my risk tolerance. I think it was beyond either of our risk tolerance. Um, yeah. But we both just kind of got that, you know, got that tunnel vision, got that summer, summit fever, mm-hmm. which was definitely magnified because of the project and because we we're getting close to the end. Um, but looking back, it was a good lesson of like being really aware of where your limits are and when you just need to turn around, regardless of what you're what you're leaving behind and what the consequences are. Yeah, I definitely I think that that kind of leads me into like my next uh, question, too, is like what kind of like perspective shifts did you experience out there? Because I feel like that's something really valuable. And, you know, to me, like I think as a mountaineer, like I remember the peak where I was just like. I'm not okay with this anymore and I need to be okay with turning around now. Like, I feel like that's like kind of a, a, like a important crossroads that all like successful mountaineers have that moment where they recognize that was stupid. And in the future, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) Like I'm going to turn around if I have to. So like maybe go a little bit more into depth about some other that shift or other perspective shifts you guys experienced out there. Yeah, I definitely, um, when I first started this project, I, I didn't think I would be able to, to even do it. I didn't know if that amount of mountains was possible for a person to climb. Um, but, uh, one huge takeaway from, for me was just taking it one day at a time, just, you know, like conceptualizing the entire project, making a plan for every single mountain and uh, making the schedule work for it too. But when when you wake up, just focus on that one day, that one mountain that you have to climb or a couple of mountains and just take it day by day. And that, that was a huge learning uh, opportunity for me to mm-hmm. I think can be applied into a lot of things in life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And through hiking as well. I'm sure you know, you know <laughs> yes. about that, like taking it one, one mile at a time. Absolutely. Yes. 
Yeah, there's definitely something to be said, like, when you're doing something big or even just living in nature, you know, like taking it one day at a time, you know, what's right in front of you. I think for me, a big takeaway was just realizing how powerful, just like taking a step back and remembering how much you love doing, uh, you know, something big like this that you're pursuing, just how powerful that can be in keeping you going and keeping your motivation high. Um, mm -hmm. Cause at the end of the day, like I, I enjoyed almost every second of the entire project. And like whenever, you know, whenever a day was feeling a little bit hard, whenever it was hard to get going in the morning, uh, I would always just take a step back and be like, oh yeah, like these mountains are so beautiful. I love moving through them. Like this is my favorite thing to do in the entire world. And that always just puts a little extra pep in your step. And yeah, I was just able to keep going every day, just, you know, riding that stoke of the, the joy of being in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Those, those moments where it's like, you know, you have to dig deep, like it's really hard what you're doing. It, you need to like step back and be like, well, I, I wanted to do this. Like, this is what I am here for. And this is like where the work begins. And now I'm like learning and yeah, to go off of your point, Nathan, like we're out here because we love to do it. And um, yeah, that, that should just keep our, our feet moving. Travis uh, Travis coined a phrase for that. I think he called it a the strange paradise. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the, yeah, the strange paradise refers to just like, you know, when times are tough, but uh you're there in your paradise. It's strange, but that's where you want to be. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I think that's good. So I'm kind of interested to hear how you guys I mean, you've mentioned going back to your cars, but you've also mentioned, you know, camping. And so was your general strategy to always try to exit the mountains after a chunk of peaks? Or were you kind of going in with this like backpacking mindset um, and carrying over? Or did you set up base camps and just do out and backs? Or was it kind of a mixture of, I'm, I'm assuming it's a mixture of all three, but was there a primary methodology you guys like to use? Yeah, definitely it was all of the above, but... Yeah, as much as possible. I mean, I tried to design the most efficient routes possible always. So that did involve a lot of like hiking in a base camp and then doing day trips from a base camp. Mm -hmm. um, Travis and I are both really soft. We don't like carrying things. We're runners. <laughs> we're, we're not mountaineers. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely tried to avoid carrying any more food than we needed to. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of hiking out to our vans in between pushes and lots of day trips as well. So then I, I know that near the end, you guys did a two week, a two week link up. So <laughs> yeah, was, was that epic. extremely like difficult for people who don't like to carry things? <laughs> it was a little bit tough. We, we definitely, we did a lot of, uh, day hikes during that one. So we didn't actually carry our packs and carry our food over. I don't think any peaks during that mm -hmm. effort. Um, in fact, I think we only carried our overnight gear over maybe like two uh, or three red. peaks, red yeah. and gray. And I think red and gray might be the only two. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan yeah. is a, a, a planning, <laughs> a planning genius. <laughs> I just, I just, I just thought it was like this big, fantastic puzzle to make everything as efficient as possible and to avoid carrying heavy stuff as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, when you're doing something this big, I mean, that is, I feel like such a crucial aspect is the planning. I mean, obviously you have to be able to adjust out there, but you know, minimizing the amount of times you are like carrying, I mean, I've carried my gear over more mountains than I care to admit. <laughs> um, and 
you know, that's not necessarily poor planning, but it's just like being kind of of the mindset of like, oh, well, I'll just do it. And then you get out there and you're like, yeah, I probably should have done this differently, you know? Yeah. Um, so I can, I can imagine at this scale, like just how, how important that would be. Uh, in, in regards to that two week push though, I do have to give a shout out to both the legendary Ashley Winchester and my parents and my mom and dad. Um, cause yeah, b- both of them hiked in some resupplies for us. Oh, so nice. yeah, when, when we started that, we just hiked in with, I think the first week of food and then we were able to get resupplies a couple of times for the rest of it. Nice. Yeah, it's always great when you can, you know, convince other people to carry your heavy things for you. Exactly. (laughs) And it's wonderful when you get to involve friends, like just being in the backcountry with other people is always super fun. Totally. So how much time... I have to mention Yelly and AJ as well. They carried up some of our food up Tyler's Pass, which is a slog. So So how much time, I'm curious, like since you did plan this in such detail, how much time did you actually spend, like, puzzling this out? (laughs) I don't have an exact number, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds of hours. I started, yeah. so I, I started planning in September and I was working on it like certainly on a weekly basis, honestly, probably on a daily basis from September all the way until I started in February. So wow. lot, lots of planning, lots of looking at GPS files and lots of like scouring trip reports and things like that. Speaking of GPS, like was that your other people's GPS tracks, was that your primary like navigational go-to or were you map encompassing? Were you kind of coming up with your own routes? Did you just like have something like Gaia where you were just plotting your own, you know, route, just going off trip reports? So we use CalTopo and I, yeah, I used other people's tracks as a lot of it, like sort of a basis, but mm-hmm. most people just do these peaks kind of one at a time or maybe link up, you know, two or three. And so it was a lot of using little snippets of a bunch of different people's tracks combined mm-hmm. with my own link-ups that I was re- having to research and figure out. Fortunately, there's this incredible guidebook to the High Sierra by RJC Corps that has, like, descriptions of the technicality. You know, they can be hit and miss, but general descriptions of, like, every single pass and route, it seems like, in the entire mm-hmm. Sierra. So I relied on that a lot to make these make these routes and then just combine them all into, like, a master CalTopo file. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, I spend so much time when I'm planning my mountains, like online, just reading people's trip reports and, and stuff like that. But yeah, you do run into this thing where everybody does the peak the same way. And I know there's been some bulgers and other peaks in Washington where I'm like, but I want to do these all together. And sometimes (laughs) my idea works and sometimes it's not. So yeah, you just got to get creative. (laughs) Yeah. You get out there and you're like, well, this probably wasn't the best, but we're just going to do it anyway. So, um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, there's so many resources on the Sierra, so it, it makes sense you'd be able to have this multifaceted resource, but it's pretty incredible. Like now you have this immense data set, like, that, oh, yeah. no, I'm know, just, to the Sierra. I, I really hope that somebody else decides to go for this so that I can, mm-hmm. uh, you know, help them, uh, help, help them with the planning and share the stoke. Yeah, for sure. They'll be able to make up time, all the time that Nathan and I lost trying to not get our feet wet crossing streams and trying to like walk upstream and find a rock. Being willing to get your feet wet can save you a lot of time. It's true. So before we wrap up, I would like to give you guys the opportunity to talk about the charitable aspect of why you guys were doing this. Uh, I saw on your website, you guys have a mention of the Bishop Paiute Tribe Food Sovereignty Program. 
So I'm kind of curious if you can talk a little bit about how about that program and how it connected to your SPSF KT. Yeah. So um, before we started, we both wanted some sort of aspect of the project to give back to the community here. And um, we were just searching around for different programs and stuff. And uh, we stumbled upon uh, the Bishop Paiute Food Sovereignty Program, which are located here in Bishop on the east side. Um, and it's on the Paiute People Reservation. And uh, the Paiutes were uh, indigenous or are, you know, live here in this range. and or like the first sort of people to, to be out here. And so we figured that would be just a, a good thing to do to, to give back to that community and just recognize, you know, the, the spaces that we're moving through, like have a lot of history. And yeah, so I met with the, 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 el the elders at their tribal council and proposed our idea. And then they gave us um, their blessing to, to fundraise for them. And so, yeah, we just, uh, had people fundraise throughout the whole project, and we ended up raising three thousand five hundred dollars. And the program specifically, they, they they have a ranch, and they grow food, and they have a, a garden, and it's small right now, but they're they're working on expanding it. And yeah, they their their goal is to be able to completely sustain their their own community as an independent from the U.S. government here. So yeah, they do really good work and we were able to, to give them a good amount of money to to keep on doing what they do. That's awesome. Did you have anything to add to that, Nathan? It was great to have the opportunity to, you know, give back to the community and give back to the indigenous people, the lands that we we're enjoying and recreating on. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and chatting with me today about this. It's super fascinating. I love to see these big um, peak bagging FKT routes and the creativity people are coming up with. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Of course. Thanks yeah, for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much again, Travis and Nathan, both for coming on the show. You can check out their FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com, and follow them on Instagram, travis.sores and nathan358. The details from their SPS project can also be seen at sps2022.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast.